0: The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. It's been a sizzling hot year for IPOs. Today on the show, we'll dive into the year that was and what's to come for the fall season of IPOs. But beyond the public market, we'll also be discussing opportunities in the private market and how to get involved in promising pre-IPO investments in the future. Here's my conversation with Kathleen Smith, principal and co-founder of Renaissance Capital, and Brian Shaver, managing director at Investex Capital. Kathleen, first eight months, I have 279 IPOs, raised $96 billion. How about the overall outlook for the final four months? And you think this could be a record year, right?
2: Well, we think so because when the returns on the already trading IPOs are doing well, and that is the case with our index, the ETF tracks that index, returns had been great in 2020, up over 100%. And that put out a slew of companies uh, into the market, that receptive market. And then we're seeing in recent months, again, outperformance of the segment, And so we're predicting that we're going to have a very big year finishing up with more IPOs than we've seen since the Internet bubble. And the amount of dollars raised, which could be about 125000000000 billion, that'll be more than the market, the IPO market has ever seen.
1: You know, and what's striking to me is normally we have to explain software companies uh, and biotech companies and what they do. But... So many of these names that I see coming are big consumer names. Warby Parker, Fresh Market, Authentic Brands, a lot of others. Is, 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 is there some kind of uh, uh, zeitgeist in the air where suddenly big consumer names are, are going to be going public?
2: Well, I think it's good to see breadth of that sort in the IPO market. And if you look back year to date, you'll see some of the best returns have come from the consumer discretionary names. So because of that, and the technology companies that are often the bread and butter of the market, they seem to be getting a bit pricey, high in valuation. So the ones that have performed well have been consumer discretionary, so it should be no surprise that we're seeing a lot of these names. And it makes it kind of fun because now we don't have to describe what Chobani does.
1: Yeah, and there's a a number of other well-known consumer brand names that have not yet formally filed but have a pretty good chance of going public uh, next year, uh, uh, this year as well, Kathleen. Uh, and I'm, I'm just yep. very impressed with the list.
2: Uh, the list is great. Uh, we're going to see Warby Parker try to do a direct listing. And we think that could be a billion dollars of issuance at maybe a three billion or so valuation. We have some other really big uh, names, Authentic Brands, which ought to be doing a billion-plus IPO, and that's a licensor of brand names like Brooks Brothers and Nautica, and a company called Freshworks. They're a little bit like Zendesk, uh, very fast-growing, and uh, again, in the billion-dollar category. Once we got back from Labor Day, we just saw a tremendous quality of company get onto the IPO calendar. So next week, we're going to see over 3 billion of issuance, And they're from companies that all have valuations of over a billion, some up to $8 billion.
1: Yeah, and we're putting up a list right now here, including ThoughtWorks and Definitive, uh, Rivian's another one that's uh, a potential IPO company that's out there. Um, I'm wondering if you think uh, all of these are going to be coming. Obviously, the most important thing is the state of the market. So far, the market's been holding up very well. Um, Are are we going to see a sudden rush uh, in the next starting next week, where in the next three weeks, you're just going to see a massive number. What does the calendar look like?
2: The calendar is filling up now. So I would say we're seeing a rush. Now, the one important thing about the IPO market is there's a pricing mechanism here. And these companies are all going to be compared to already traded public peers. So if the overall market goes down, the pricing will be adjusted on these IPOs. They should be. If not, the deals won't work. And that is important, because if deals don't work, then investors stop participating. So I think if the, the IPO mechanism has been working just fine. I don't see why it wouldn't. And unless we get to some really big corrections, I think the pricing mechanism will give us deals that have <clears throat> values that make sense to investors.
1: Yeah, you know, Brian, let me turn to you. It's striking that some of these companies have been private for many, many years. They used to be companies would be private for five years, you know, and then uh, go public. But now I'm seeing companies that are private 10 years, even 15 years before they go public. And they're they're still private here. So tell us a little bit of what kind of opportunities are available for people who want to buy or sell private securities. And what are you doing to help that?
0: So, I mean... That's a great observation, Bob, and I'll tell you that there has been a massive paradigm shift, obviously, within the industry, and I would say that's now the norm, right? So you're seeing companies stay private 10 to 15 years because you've had a handful of the largest buy side investors getting involved, injecting cash and liquidity into these companies at very early stages. We're talking B and C rounds. Um, And at that point, they no longer need to go to the public markets for liquidity. And so again, that new trend that we're seeing, and as we say down on the floor of the exchange, a trend is your friend, is companies are staying private longer. And so having access to that and thinking about how to democratize the process of investing um, is is something that's very important and is on our mind quite a bit, as we know that the regulators are looking at it very, very hard. Um, And as the regulatory uh, dust settles, we want to find Explain ways to Explain how this, this works though. Right
1: now, under your company, if I had shares I wanted to sell, I would go on the platform and seek a brokerage company. You'd go through the brokerage company, right? That's right. And then the
0: company had, you still need approval of the company itself, That's right? exactly right. And, and again, it's it's a great point. There's a lot of snafus in investing in private companies. It hasn't been electronified the way um, investing in public companies has. You can't hit the button and buy shares in a, in a millisecond, the way my algorithms uh, you know, that we built in the past have done. Today, those, this process could be very long and arduous. It could be days to months. By the time, and, and again, by the time you get in front of the companies to find out if they are going to row for those shares. And the roefer is the most important part of the process because it seems to be the most... Roefer uh, meaning? M- roefer meaning the right of first refusal. And so to your point of the question, which is those companies have the right, if I were to go to them as an early employee and say I'm about to sh- sell my shares for 20 bucks to someone, they can say we have the right of first refusal to say no, we'll pay you the 20 and take those shares back, whether into treasury or for whatever reason. This is a, still a pretty antiquated process. It's, it's really like an
1: over-the-counter transaction, essentially. So if I'm at XYZ company, and it's been private for 10 years, not going public, and I own 10,000 shares, pick a number, and yeah. I want to sell 1,000 shares, it's actually fairly difficult to do that right now. You, you're you trying to find some way to, auto, to uh, not automate the process, but do more electronic kind of trading. Yeah. But well, you still have to get the approval of the company, and you still have to have selling shares, you know, you, you still have to get the company approval. And you still have the fact
0: that this has to be a qualified individual, right? That's exactly right. And so there's a number of different checks you need to go through. Um, and today, it is extremely antiquated and high touch. And that is the reason that Investex exists today, is because um, our very ambitious goal, um, while ambitious, we don't think it's impossible. It's not, you know, it, this isn't rocket science. At the, the end of the day, is figuring out a back office rails so that when you want to make an investment or if there's a for process, that it can be automated slash electronified and that's very important. So, w- is there an ETF angle here? So, for
1: example, it, could you ever envision a process whereby you can actually get private companies in an ETF as a, as a group and
0: trade it as, as a group? Funny, I had a, just a meeting this morning with one of the largest ETF issuers out there uh, who is very aggressively seeking to do exactly that, which is build an ETF um, around private companies. And if you think about, really the larger U.S. consumer, the larger swath of the consumers who are not um, accredited today have no access to private companies, and the SEC has inadvertently made the rules, such as defi- what you know their definition of an accredited investor is, uh, have inadvertently made it very difficult um, for the for the masses, if you will, to invest. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that's kind of where the puck is going, not where it's at. And uh, and there are specific ETF issuers who are seeking SEC approval uh, to come up with ways in building baskets around private companies.
1: Kathleen, what's your take on this whole thing? Uh, number one, what what do you think about the ability? of uh, uh, should people have an ability to buy or sell shares in a, in a private company, as Brian is essentially trying to set up? And and why are companies staying private so long? It used to be five years, and with the venture capital, they want it out. Now I see 10 years and more with venture capital firms.
2: Well, we would comment that in the private market, I think the most important thing for all markets to work well, it's kind of like the Amazon the more information you have about what you're buying and selling the more transparency you have a better marketplace and that's, right. that's why i think the ipo market has worked so well there's a requirement for disclosure audit financials and stuff like that so the more that brian's efforts uh, enable investors to access with good information then uh, i think uh, the, the growth ought to be there and i think it's a noble effort i, I myself I think that the SEC should get rid of the accredited investor rule, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Investors can know what they're doing. So I think that it's a good, a, a good approach. Um, I would say that in answer to why there's so many companies that have stayed private, back during the Jobs Act, the SEC put in a, a regulation or relieved a regulation that said, if you had so many shareholders, like, and it was, I think, 500, you, were then, you then had to go public because basically once you have that many shareholders, you're effectively need to tell them what do the financials look like and stuff like that. Well, they extended, they had extended that number to like over 2000. And so that enabled companies to stay very big and not to go public and okay, that's fine. We're in a point in time right now where there's a lot of capital available yeah. and right. it makes it easy, but remember There are times when we know the IPO window can be closed and capital is not available. And it's important for companies to get the the fact that they have traded shares. Liquidity can really give them a a benefit of being able to use that stock to raise additional capital, to make acquisitions that they would not have if they stayed private.
1: But isn't the, I mean, other than the change in the SEC rule with 2,000 shareholders, isn't the simple answer that capital is really cheap and it's easy for these companies to stay private? Why bother going public when your venture capital firm, you'll, you'll do a series A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H? We've gone through the alphabet with some of these rounds of, of funding that are going on. Why go public when you can get cheap money for the rest of, of your life, essentially? Isn't that the real answer? Okay.
2: And the equation sort of flip-flop because generally speaking, they should be, these valuations should not be as high as they are. I mean, we've seen a lot of IPOs that are done at valuations that are lower than their last rounds. So the fact that capital is running to these companies, it's not the best formula, but look, we've been in all kinds of markets. Markets adapt. That's what they are.
1: Brian, what what about access to information that Kathleen was talking about? Today, if you want to invest in a private company, it is really hard to get information. She's right. it's You
0: used impossible. the word
1: asymmetrical. Yes, and uh, that's exactly what it is. So it's what a- are you going to do? How do you b- make it possible?
0: Right, so when I say asymmetrical, only from the sense that the larger investors that we spoke to earlier, involved in those earlier rounds, do have access to the company's financials uh, or otherwise. And so, Again, she, Kathleen brings up a great point, and as we're sitting here in this great institution that once had a point of sale, uh, which, you know, not to the extent that it used to be, but again, um, price discovery is a big part of the challenge for investors in private companies. And so that's another one of the things that we try to provide on our platform, which is access to financials, albeit some of it publicly sourced, but others that we gain access to directly from the companies, and after ascertaining that, put that on our platform for our, for our broker community and our broker partners to share with their customers, and so that they can make more informed decisions in their investments. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, uh, Kathleen, one of the disappointments uh, with IPOs uh, this year has been the poor aftermarket performance. Uh, IPOs, on average, lost money, as you have noted, after the first day of trading. Now, why was that happening, and is there any improvement recently?
2: Well, there's definitely been an improvement recently. the aftermarket returns are positive now for the last three months I think it's about twelve percent uh, which is very good but if you drag along the full year, they are still they're just about break even now when aftermarket returns go negative invest you know investors start to step back and they don't you don't get the follow through that you want with a priced IPO so that sig- signals a slowdown in uh, interest and a slow then is therefore a slow down the IPO market. We saw that uh, in terms of issuance. We saw that slowdown this past summer. We also had a slowdown related to the Chinese IPOs that were done. Those uh, performed very poorly. so that dragged down the aftermarket returns too.
1: Yeah. And See, it's, so it's, we
2: go through a cycle. now we're at, we're at a better phase of the cycle. Valuations seem to be pricey, especially for the tech companies. So no. then you see the new ones come in, they're priced better, the, uh, the aftermarket returns improve, and the cycle kind of starts over again.
1: So you're, it, 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 it strikes me as two things happen. When I saw the IPO ETF drop notably, it was February, March. That's when interest rates also moved up. And obviously, yeah. uh, higher rates affect some of these younger startup growth companies, which are valued less on a discounted cash flow model. Uh, I think that's probably a, a, a major issue, but also prices were too high. Are, are you saying that, we, and we've seen the IPO ETF do better in the last month or so, is this because in July and August, the, the IPOs, the price were, were lower priced and they're performing better in the aftermarket the, after the, they start trading?
2: I think that it's a little bit of that because the ETF uh, is including companies that are already public and just on a quarterly basis will pick up new ones. So I think the it had to do with the performance of growth companies, as you mentioned, when interest rates appeared to be rising. It's not happening now, but with rates go if rates go up, it does affect the value of growth companies. Now we seem to be have turned around, and we're in a market where it's investors just want growth. They're ignoring anything that's not growing. So investors are willing to pay a lot of money for growth when you can interest rates are, the real return is negative on any kind of uh, fixed income uh, product. So in terms of yield, uh, you really value then a company that can produce uh, growth and cash flow. Interestingly enough, unlike 2000, the cash flow is very good on most of these
1: companies. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation with Kathleen Smith from Renaissance Capital. Kathleen, thanks for sticking around. The one thing I didn't get a chance to chat with you about is your thoughts on direct listings and SPACs, which have come out as rather significant competitors uh, to IPOs. Let me just start with the SPAC market. We had a torrid start to the year. Uh, And it's cooled off quite a bit, but still robust. Um, The SEC several months ago announced uh, they were a little concerned about some of the comments being made by people about SPACs, uh, particularly forward-looking comments. Do you think that had anything to do with slowing the SPAC market down? And, and, And what's your thoughts on that versus the IPO process?
2: For us, it's all about returns. And SPACs have not produced the returns for investors that IPOs have. And for that reason, we think that the whole, the idea, and and there's some validity to the idea, has really cooled off because companies, uh, investors are not just not doing well. I have some data here, for example, Year to date, regular IPOs are up 19% and over half of them are trading above their IPO price. SPACs are flat for the year and only 37% are trading above their IPO price. So it's very tricky to go in to the SPAC market thinking that you uh, it may be a winner's game. You have to be so careful about each one. So you can't just throw darts at anyone and think that you'll do well and this data we've looked at data going back 5 years just the historical data shows that the SPAC does not perform as well as IPOs over the same period of time and,
1: and why is that what, what do you think is the problem with the SPAC structure or the, that it's just easier to go public using a SPAC with it, 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 i mean the SPAC advocates say the disclosures are the same why is the why is there such an underperformance
2: Well, we believe that it's harder to go public through a regular IPO. The scrutiny, the disclosure is much greater. And we're talking about a company that exists. You're studying that. With the SPAC, you're starting out with a blind pool and then making an acquisition where the sponsor adds dilution to it. And so our view is that it's like one of those, uh, I guess, a curse of of the structure where uh, if you're a company that can go public, and go through that scrutiny, you'll do it. It's the ones that can't go public that end up in the SPAC market. And yeah, they te- so because it, you can produce uh, forecasts, they tend to be ones that uh, you need forecast. They don't have revenue. There's a lot of uh, far out projections in order to, right. um, to look and at. And so
1: it. It's, it, is it your opinion of the several hundred SPACs that went public this year, if we have a down market, if we have a 10% correction in the market, is a, a, a lot of these gonna roll over more so than would in an IPO market? I mean the, the, We've had a we've had a historic up market, and as you said, they're already underperforming.
2: Right. I think that the SPACs have something going for them when they're a blind pool, and that the downside's uh, minimal. So if we had a big correction, you have some limited downside if it's still the blind pool. But after that, they become companies like anyone else, and we believe the risk level's high for SPACs. So they should be challenged just like any other company that's uh, in the marketplace, and maybe more if the risk profile is higher.
1: Yeah, the risk profile is higher, why? Because there was less disclosure? What What is more risky about the SPAC versus an IPO?
2: Because we believe that uh, a company that could go public would, but you have to withstand the scrutiny. The IPO market's requiring companies that have revenues, growth, uh, many uh, uh, cash flow, uh, yeah. with some exception. With SPACs, uh, you don't need that. and. So SPACs tend to be a a different kind of company, a story stock, a uh, a space company where, you know, you don't have revenue yet. And those can work. And for those companies, they need capital. So it's an outlet for them. But I think the Uh, risk level is very high. uh,
1: Finally, just direct listings. There's only a half a dozen of them, really. But uh, Warby Parker is likely going to be a direct listing. Is there anybody else that's a potential direct listing candidate? I, I mean, how do you feel about their performance? Essentially, they're not selling any any uh, any new stock, for the most part, to, to the public, uh, and uh, you, you know, the, the, I guess there's less of a lockup. I mean, your thoughts on direct listings?
2: Yes, uh, it, fundamentally, they, there's not a big difference. In fact, we include direct listings in our IPO ETF. Uh, we own Roblox, we own Coinbase, and um, the it's really hard to tell. Uh, about the structure. I think the main thing is because it's a liquidity event for insiders and financial sponsors, it tends to be a little messy at the beginning. And so the, when the, if the company can lock up shares and control some of the distribution during trading, I think it's helpful. Some of them have. So that's where we feel uh, the company should be looking at controlling the amount of, of stock that's in, that's out in the marketplace. But basically, for investors, there's no reason to run after a direct listing. Plenty of time to buy it, very good disclosure. And since it's a liquidity event for insiders, wait a little bit, and uh, the market will find its way to value these, and they may very well be good investments. We like Roblox. That's performed really well.
1: It has, yes. Okay, Kathleen, thanks very much. Uh, That's it for today, everybody. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge, CNBC.
0: Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities.
2: Here's the greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.